This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Hey, folks, welcome back. You're in the workplace. I'm Peter Capelli. And, and, I'm, and I'm Ivan Barranke still. <laughs> yeah, still Ivan Barranke. Uh, this yeah. is, we just pointed out, uh, the finance hour on our show in the workplace. So this half hour, we're also going to talk about things going on in the world of investments and financial advisors. And here's the key hook, as they say, or as in business school, here's the takeaway. If you look at the wealth in the United States at the moment, some estimates put the percentage of wealth that women control at 51%, so the, they control the majority of wealth in the United States. If you look at people who are managing wealth for individuals, that is financial advisors, only 16% are women. So 51% of the mo- of the wealth, only 16% of the people doing it. Why is that? And what is going on in this industry? And with us to talk about it is Mike Foy, who's the Senior Director of the Wealth Management Practice at J.D. Powers, the company that surveys people on this kind of stuff, all kinds of outcomes. So, Mike, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, uh, Mike, I understand that you uh, are from this part of the planet, right? Uh, that's right. Yeah, we're um, based uh, in New York and uh, live in New Jersey, so not far away at all. Yeah, you grew you grew up uh, someplace around here because it looks like you went to school in this uh, part of the world. Yeah, uh, I did. Yeah. So I, I grew up in Central Jersey. I went to uh, went to college uh, undergrad at uh, Muhlenberg up in Allentown. So mm-hmm. been on. Uh, Spend some time on both sides of the Delaware. Yeah, there you go. So J.D. Powers is a company that people know about probably because of their most famous uh, quality surveys about cars, but you also study other kinds of stuff, right? So tell us a little about the breadth of what you guys do. Yeah, that's right. So you're right. Most, you know, uh, we just celebrated our 50th uh, anniversary at J.D. Power, and um, most people do know us for our automotive uh, consumer satisfaction research. Uh, but uh, what not as many people know is that we do similar customer satisfaction and customer experience research across a dozen or so other industries, mm-hmm. and uh, one of those is financial services. So my role, as you pointed out, was uh, really leading up our wealth management team for North America. So we do a lot of benchmarking and uh, customer satisfaction research among uh, retail investors and also among financial advisors, right? Okay. So we measure uh, the study, which just came out last week, measures uh, financial advisors' satisfaction with their uh, broker-dealer uh, in terms of the, um, you know, the support that they get and the experience that they have from uh, leadership to compensation to technology. Really, it's a very robust survey um, that measures uh, how their experience is with their um, with their broker-dealer. So uh, let's start out, and we're going to ask you maybe some general questions about how those folks are doing, just in general, the people who are financial advisors. I would have thought that this is a pretty tough occupation. You know, you're making money by getting clients. you got to get the clients to give you money. you got to manage all those kinds of things, just as we were talking to Jonathan Beck a little while ago. But in most of the business... Um, you know, you got to have a fair number of clients. You're always losing clients. I mean, it's direct sales kind of stuff as well as financial advising. 
and it's very metrics-driven, very numbers-driven, very competitive. Uh, so I wouldn't have thought these folks were particularly happy campers. What did you find in your survey? Well, you know, it's a good point. It's, it is, it's a challenging uh, role, um, and I think it's particularly challenging for the first, let's say, five to seven years. Okay. Um, as you're sort of building up your book of clients, um, I think it becomes a little bit easier after you've established that book of clients. Uh, even though you may have some attrition, you also have a lot of organic growth through referrals. But the, okay. the early stages are certainly challenging. Um, I think, you know, nowadays most advisors do start either with a, a mentor or as part of a team. Oh, really? Um, hmm. You know, it's very difficult. Hmm. I think the, the days of somebody starting with a, a phone and a phone book and just dialing for dollars, as they used to say, yeah. um, that's a very, very difficult way to grow a practice. And um, not many folks, uh, you know, really mm -hmm. do grow a practice that way today. Uh, but you're right. It is absolutely a very challenging um, and very time-consuming um, you know, career, particularly as you're going through that first, you know, say five okay. to seven years of acquiring uh, acquiring your, your book. And the other thing that I remember about this industry, and you can tell me if it's still true, is that uh, particularly when the stock markets are going up, as they have been, <clears throat> that other companies really want to hire financial advisors away from their competitors because that's how you get clients, right? You basically are hiring their book of business. Is that still a big thing? It is a big thing. I mean, re professional recruiting is, is a big deal. Um, you know, the, many of the large firms, particularly, you know, the wirehouses, the, uh, you know, the Merrill Lynch's and Morgan Stanley's of the world, um, have um, written, you know, very large checks yeah. for competitors to come, come to, uh, to their firm. Because you're right. I mean, really, if you think about it, uh, the loyalty that clients principally have is to an individual advisor, much more so than to right. a firm. And so uh, typically advisors can um, bring anywhere from, you know, 80 to 90 percent of their assets typically from firm to firm. Mm. So uh, it is still very big, um, although in the last couple of years we've started to see some of the big firms dial back a little bit from, um, from recruiting and try to really focus a little bit more on allocating resources to um, to retaining their existing talent, oh. and also um, really look, looking at the need to bring new talent into the industry. Right? Okay, so, that's interesting. Uh, I think the hmm. the estimates I've seen are um, that uh, something like forty three percent of current advisors today are over fifty five years old. Oh, right. So they're yeah. So yeah, you've really got uh, yeah. an, an imminent, you know, exodus from the industry just in terms of retirement. And while things like technology can certainly help individual advisors be more productive and support more clients and so on, um, some of those advisors are going to have to be replaced, right? right? And so firms have to do more than simply um, recruit competitive FAs, uh, you know, in order to, to sort of fill that mm -hmm. Um, that gap. They've okay. got to be um, bringing new talent into the industry as well. Okay. Let's get uh, juicy here, if you don't mind, and uh, ask you, what do you think, uh, tell us something about what these folks earn per year if you're a successful financial advisor, let's say in a well-known company. What are they earning in a year? Sure. I mean, so, you know, the the 
certainly at the top end, um, you could be earning, you know, a you could be bringing in, you know, a seven-figure income for sure. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you look at the, you know, the 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 mean um, compensation for the industry, it's probably somewhere, um, you know, between 150 and 200,000. Uh, but that's again, that's going to reflect a very wide range, right. Um, right. depending on. Uh, you know how experienced and how successful an individual. You got the got the median figure there for all our statistics fans. Uh, yeah, I don't actually have it um, right in front of me, but um, well, I uh, think so. Let me guess, and and you can correct me if you think this is wrong. I, I uh, remember a while ago, so may, and I, maybe it hasn't changed that much. Uh, that these folks, you know, if you were a successful financial advisor and you had a good book of business, you were making two or three million dollars a year without too much trouble. And I remember in, in those days, uh, if a company wanted to acquire you, uh, the payment, the sort of hiring bonus would be a couple of million dollars. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so typically, yeah, the companies um, would write a check for, um, it's oftentimes reported as a percentage of tra- trailing 12-month production, right? So if you're generating... Okay. Um, you know, if you're a million-dollar producer, um, then um, you might expect a, uh, you know, a million-dollar bonus, so 100% of your trailing 12-month production. Okay. In some cases, you know, it's gone even higher than that, where someone's getting, you know, 200% of their, their trailing 12 months. So, mm. yeah, it's mm-hmm. certainly to, you know, recruit a, an established, relatively successful advisor uh, you're talking about for sure a, a seven-figure um, right. bonus, um, and then you know obviously that's on top of what they're you know generating um, through managing their practice. Right. And that was a big shakeup in this industry because before you know before the 1990s, mid 1990s, people didn't leave. You know, if you started out at Merrill Lynch, you would retire at Merrill Lynch. And then, you know, the same thing happened in law and other professional services, that people are getting hired away, and it's a big headache for the companies who are trying to keep their folks. Well, let's turn to the action in your survey. Are these folks happy or not? What did you find? Well, you know, generally speaking, um, the results were pretty strong, right? So, um, you know, J.D. Power, our uh, practice is to... Uh, score satisfaction um, on a thousand point scale. Okay. Right. So we're we're really looking at the results, um, and what we saw is for this study um, that the average satisfaction score uh, we rank firms based on whether they're in the sort of the captive or employee channel versus the independent channel. Oh, what's um, what's the difference? Uh, tell so, us how that works. Yeah, so so the the captive channel or employee channel would be where the financial advisor is actually an employee of the broker dealer, okay, as opposed to um, the independent broker dealer channel where they're more of a independent contractor or okay. affiliated with the broker dealer, okay. Um, some in some cases it's more like a franchisee kind of model, right? Um, but they're not directly employed, okay, um, yep. by them. Big so, difference. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's a pretty big difference um, in terms of their payout. Um, as well as in terms of the flexibility they have. So it's often a trade-off between um, how much you value the established brand of, let's say, a wirehouse yep. um, and the, the increased level of support you get there. Um, 
you know, versus your payout rate. So at a typical, you know, employee firm, you might get a roughly a 40% payout. Um, so you're getting paid basically 40% of what you produce. Um, it's about double that if you're on the independent side. Okay. Um, however, mm-hmm. you've got to do a lot more um, typically yourself, and you often don't have as recognized a consumer brand um, behind you. Um, so we tend to see, you know, the satisfaction among the employee FAs uh, average was 726 out of a thousand, and on the uh, independent side is a little bit higher than that. So it was about uh, 753. Okay. Um, and that's typical. We generally tend to see the independents are a little bit more satisfied. Mm. They've got, you know. Uh, they're making more of what they generate, and okay. they tend to have a bit more flexibility in terms of how they um, they manage their practice. Manage their time. So uh, let's talk about the differences between men and women here, some of which are kind of striking. So tell us, what what do you think was the maybe the biggest difference between men and women on what dimension? Yeah, so, I mean, what was interesting in general, I mean, our first finding was that uh, that women as a whole in, in, either, in either channel, right, whether they're uh, employees or whether they're independents were um, generally more satisfied with their uh, firm. Um, so their satisfaction score overall was higher. Uh, their responses to questions like, you know, how likely are you to consider leaving your firm within the next one to two years, they were generally less likely than men. Okay. Um, they scored higher in terms of likelihood to recommend. So, you know, the general kind of high level insight was that. Even though there is that, you know, deficiency of women um, in the, you know, in terms of their underrepresentation in the industry, those that are in the industry are actually relatively highly satisfied. Right. Um, right. We did see a few areas where um, they have some unique pain points um, that men don't have to the same degree, and the three that that um, we sort of highlighted were um, number one, they're less likely to say they have a good work-life balance, mm-hmm. right? So this is a, a, you know, a theme, obviously, that crosses industries. Uh, but, you know, to the degree that um, firms want to be uh, an attractive employer for um, women, um, it's even more important to provide, you know, the flexibility to be able to, um, you know, manage your own um, schedule, to be able to access tools and resources uh, remotely, um, et cetera. Um, so that's one area. The second area was related to um, the effectiveness of mentoring programs. Okay. So women were less likely to say that mentoring programs that they had um, worked with were, um, were very effective in helping them develop professionally. Okay. Um, some of that may be, you know, simply a, a chicken-egg issue where because there aren't a lot of um, established women in the profession, um, there aren't as many available to serve in that mentorship role. Yeah. Um, and so that's a, that's a challenge. Yeah. Um, and then the last one was around compensation, actually. So we found that women were much, much less likely to say they felt their compensation um, reflected their job performance or that they completely understood their compensation. Yeah. Well, um, I wanted to ask Yvonne this one because he he studies compensation too. Uh, But let me just tell listeners what it looks like. Even for men, only two-thirds said they completely understood their own compensation. Does that sound... Let me ask Yvonne here. Surprised by that? 
Um, not not a lot, uh, mm. but I think there's a difference between being able to describe it and actually correctly responding to it. Yeah, you know, I think. But they can't. Doesn't seem they can even respond. They, they describe yeah. it, right? Uh, yeah. So it's a little, little pun, uh, funny there, Mike. Why is this? Uh, I don't know that most people would say that, right? That I don't say I completely understand my compensation. Uh, people on salaries, you would think ought to completely understand their compensation. What's going on with these folks? Yeah. Well, I think one thing is that, that compensation for an advisor is probably a little bit more complicated than most people's compensation, right, because it, there's a lot of moving parts in terms of uh, commissions and bonuses in addition to the salary. The other part is that particularly on the employee side um, in, with the, the wirehouses and banks and so on, um, there, there's been a tendency in recent years to change compensation um, relatively frequently in oh, order to ah, okay. try to drive mm. certain strategic initiatives. Right, right? so they yeah. keep changing it. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. I think so, there's a there's a lot of uh, research and 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 behavioral economics on this that you know it may be profit maximizing for a company to do that to change the compensation mm -hmm. system frequently and mm -hmm. also to make it relatively complex uh, mm -hmm. because the underlying job is complex. But for the for the people who operate in this uh, in in face of this complexity, they they just use rules of thumb. They yeah. just don't engage with all the complexity of it, right. and that um, actually it turns out the more profit maximizing compensation system is a simpler one, simpler one, the one mm -hmm. that is not changed all the time. But companies don't really get that message. Yeah. Well, how about this uh, idea? Some people would say, we had a colleague here, um, Professor Marshall Meyer, wrote a book about performance management. And his view was that people are constantly gaming performance management and that uh, companies are chain change performance management systems basically to try to deal with the gaming. So they're trying to stay one step ahead of their employees always by kind of keeping it you know, different all right. the time. Does that make right. sense? Uh, maybe. Uh, I mean, on one level, you want them to game it. You yeah. know, we, if, yeah. if the name of the game is that, you know, right, you right, work right. to right. maximize your, your bonus. Profits, yeah. So, I mean, the, the issue is that they are, they are they're poorly designed. Yeah. So, um, they're right, they're maximizing yeah. their bonus, but yeah. at the expense of other things and maybe worse for the companies. I mean, problem, if, I, right? if I throw a party for my kids and then they're gaming the games, I, I don't blame my children for it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, should, mm -hmm. I should understand that I'm yeah. to blame for yeah. it. Uh, so, Mike, let's uh, ask you maybe last year, the again, the kind of takeaway thing here, which I think is most interesting for your study. So it looks like women are women financial advisors are more satisfied with their work than men are. They also are more likely to say they would stay at their company. They're more likely to uh, refer people to their company. But there's still way fewer of them, 16% versus 84%, uh, I guess, of men. Um, what's going on here? I think you know it's obviously traditionally it was a it's been a male dominated industry and I think um, probably the perception among uh, non advisors is um, generally that it is a sort of a male dominated industry and <clears throat> um, and maybe not the most welcoming or friendly environment for a woman right so I think the perception of it being a kind of a boys club or, or even a, a kind of a, a locker room type atmosphere um, probably deters some women that might be interested from considering pursuing the career. Um, I think that has, you know, I won't say gone away, but I think it has changed quite a lot. I think that, 
you know, the leadership of all of these companies um, recognize how important it is that they address this issue, um, okay. not only because of the gap uh, between, um, you know, the percentage of um, women's uh, controlled wealth and advisors, uh, but because of the demographic issue we talked about with um, large numbers of, of advisors leaving the industry to retirement. Okay. So yeah. I think, you know, the, the, the lesson to me is that the women who are in the industry um, are really the greatest resource that these firms have to um, be advocates and um, and be evangelists even mm-hmm. about how the you know the industry can be a fulfilling career opportunity for um, women who are who are um, who are so yeah. inclined. It does sound like they got their work cut out for them though, because lots of other industries have closed that gap. This seems like one of the biggest ones I've seen. Mike, thanks very much for being with us. Mike is the Senior Director for the Wealth Management Practice at J.D. Power. And we got just a couple of minutes left here, and I'm going to seize those couple of minutes because the last couple of weeks I have been trying to talk about this particular study, and we always run out of time to talk about it. So this time, darn it, we are going to talk about it. And this is the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics Contingent Worker Survey. Now, before you start yawning, listeners, um, here's what it is about. It is about the percentage of the workforce who are working in job categories, work, other than regular employment. And this matters because uh, we hear all this stuff about the growing gig economy. So the last time this study was done is in 2005, and it was repeated in 2017. Government surveys take a while before they process them and turn them out. But here's the punchline. The percentage of workers in the United States who are independent contractors of one kind or another, that's a legal status. That doesn't mean they're working on your house, not that kind of contractor. Everybody in the gig economy is an independent contractor. They're not an employee. And by definition, if you are not an employee, you're an independent contractor, right? That figure in 2017 was 6.9%, almost 7%. But in 2005, it was 7.4%. So, in other words, the percentage of workers who are independent contractors actually declined since 2005. Now, you might say it's not a huge decline, but it is not an increase either. And the reason I think this is so interesting is because we've been bombarded over the last couple of years about the rise of the gig economy. People want to work this way. Employers don't want to hire people. They want to use people in this gig, independent contractors. Surveys of employers say they expect to keep doing this. But if you look at the reality, uh, it's not there. So did the survey um, discuss a little bit where these people work? Um, You mean as independent contractors? Yes, yes. I mean, is it concentrated in some industries, or is it like evenly spread out across the economy? I've got all that data in front of me, but uh, I'm not going to dig through it now, so let me say I don't know. You don't know. (laughs) Okay, yeah. But I think we can look very quickly. I think what what it is telling is that it is not an exploding sector. It's not an exploding domain. And, you know— sure. We have to remember the last survey was in 2017. So this includes Uber and Lyft. Okay, so just to be clear, we are we we, it fully captured that wave. Yeah, yeah, Uh, and you know. Well, here's what I think is interesting about this, and and this is kind of the uh, story about how narratives 
grow independent of evidence, right? Mm. So Uber was a fascinating story, Airbnb a fascinating story. It's easy to focus on those stories and to imagine, as lots and lots of pundits have, that this is happening across the entire economy. So, mm. you know, we have reports from prominent consulting firms saying that the whole world is changing because of this. We've got advocates saying this is the way you should go in the economy. We've got all these stories about how the world is changing because of the gig economy and how we have to adapt to it. But it turns out fundamentally that it hasn't changed. Now, here's the thing that I find most disappointing about that. Um, it's not that we've gone off to the races without evidence. That's, of course, you know, maybe a little disconcerting. But in the absence of other evidence, you might not be too surprised that that might happen. It is that I will bet you anything that the narrative doesn't change. So despite the fact that this is the best evidence we've got, that this has not happened, that we really have not moved in the direction of this gig economy, yeah. I bet you the narrative is not going to change. Because now so many people say it, they repeat it over and over, that I think it's going to stick even though the facts are it's not true. Yeah. Anyway, we'll come back next That's week. That's the theme of our day. The theme of, of our Ooh, yes. Uh, we'll come back next week and see if anybody's retracted their statements about this. But in the meantime, have a good week. We'll see you again next week. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 